Hey, this is Olivia. And I'm Tashana. We're the hosts of Something's Not Right. We do a bunch of research and then we tell each other crazy stories. They're usually about true crime, but we're down to talk about anything strange or disturbing. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, and you don't mind a little salty language, check us out. For more info on Something's Not Right, visit notrightpodcast.net. Alright, for part two, I'm going to do the same thing that I did for part one. I'm going to put out a fucking disclaimer. I'm not a racist. I think slavery is one of the shittiest parts of our American history. And just so you guys know, I will be reading uh, some reviews after this episode, so stay tuned after the outro music. But as for the disclaimer, I am not a racist. I do not condone slavery. What I'm going to tell you is facts. If you don't like it, please don't be mad at me. Go back in time and change shit. All right? Get a hold of John Teeter. You know, get a hold of us, Dr. Sam Beckett, alright? These are not my opinions, these are facts. I do not side with the Confederacy, I do not side with the Union. What I am telling you is fact. Uh, I will say that I do have to give a couple thanks real quick to some new patrons. I would like to say thank you to Christine, Penny, Missy, Lisa, Cole, Randy, Stephanie, Cammie, and Megan. Thank you all so, so, so much for your donations. A lot of these donations are more than generous. I've always set out to make this about the listeners, and that's why you guys get free episodes if you pledge a dollar. It's not, for me personally, about making money. Uh, It's about putting out awesome content to people who enjoy listening to it, and that's what I enjoy, so... Uh, You know, I appreciate every donation that comes in, and thank you so, so much. Both that being said, I will say again, please don't take what I'm saying out of context when I do my intro, because I am not a racist, I'm not trying to condone slavery, but I what I'm trying to explain to you guys is why the Confederate states were so pissed off. Basically, all right. Um, there was a lot of political shit involved in the Civil War that people do not realize. Everybody thinks it was all about slavery. You know, don't get me wrong. That was a huge portion of it. But that was not all of what it was about. I am here to present you information in non-biased form so you guys can understand the story a lot better. And I hope that came out right, because to me it sounded like a bunch of, uh, you know, rambling or whatever. But thank you all to my new patrons. Obviously, you just heard a promo. I'm not going to play a promo and promote something that I don't listen to myself, okay? So if I enjoy, I, I enjoy good conversational tone podcasts, but I also enjoy good produced podcasts too. I'm really like 50-50. For me personally, it's about content and presentation. I don't give a shit about, you know, flash in the pan, fancy shit, all right? Obviously, I'm simple. But I will say this. When it comes to the Northfield robbery in this episode, I did do something that I have never done on MC before. And I went full bore production on that section of the episode for two reasons. The first one being, out of spite to prove all those other podcasters and all those people that call me a simpleton and say that I can't do production shit if I wanted to. But the other reason that I did that is because I want you guys, as listeners, 
to be as involved in that part of the story as you possibly can be. I hope you all enjoy it. And the great reception on part one, part two is going to be awesome, hopefully. And then we're going to move on to part three. And then we're going to continue on with some other cases, some lesser known cases. Um, I'm going to revert back to my old schedule. I just had to get this uh, three-part Jesse James out because of the reception of the Billy the Kid and some other bullshit. But anyway, on with the show. Thank you. I'm going to read you two quotes. Please remember that these are not my words. The first quote is, and I quote, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality, and inasmuch as they cannot so live. While they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. I say upon this occasion, I do not perceive that, because the white man is to have the superior position, the Negro should be denied everything. End quote. Quote number two. Quote, never look down on someone unless you are helping them up. End quote. The first quote was by the 16th U.S. President Abraham Lincoln during his fourth debate with Stephen A. Douglas at Charleston, Illinois on September 18, 1858. The second quote was from Jesse Woodson James. The reason I'm telling you these quotes is because, as I stated in my first part episode, history is written by the victors. There's a lot of things that you do not know about Abraham Lincoln. Like, initially, the Emancipation Proclamation was a military policy to undermine the rebellion states. Four of these states were not included in the Emancipation Proclamation. These four states were Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri. Missouri specifically was loyal to the Union, but had legally still kept the right to own slaves. They were legally within their rights, and they had legally voted to secede from the Union. Abraham Lincoln did not want this on his shoulders as a president. He did not want this on his presidency. He would do anything in his power to undermine what the states of rebellion did. Now, Missouri was one of those states that was excluded from the Emancipation Proclamation because it was loyal to the Union, but legally they were still allowed to own slaves. This is where Jesse James grew up. This is why Missouri was so volatile and 50-50, and his entire childhood was pretty much a fucking war zone. 
it's crazy to think of the atmosphere and the conditions in which he was raised. And I'm not saying that slavery is right, so please don't take what I say out of context, please. But I'm trying to paint for you a picture of what's going on with the United States during the Civil War. And not to bash Lincoln anymore, but he was very in favor of segregation. As a matter of fact, the summer of 1862, which was the second summer of the Civil War, and all these slaves who were either recently freed or had escaped started crossing over into the Union, Abraham Lincoln had no idea what to do with them. So what he was doing was he was going to colonize them. So what he did was he took 450 newly freed African Americans and sent them to a test colony, which was, I believe, Haiti. And after they started dying of smallpox all over the place and starvation, he did eventually rescue them. Now, I will say that eventually the Emancipation Proclamation did evolve into the freeing of the slaves. But like I had tried to stress in part one, history is written by the victors. So if you don't understand why the Confederate States, specifically the innocent civilians who were pretty much guilty by association, were so pissed off, I strongly urge you to do some research because it'll paint a lot better picture of what was going on at the time and why Jesse James was viewed as a hero. Now, in his day, Jesse James and his gang committed no less than 30 robberies, killed 17 innocent people throughout eight states. These guys were the only people that the Pinkerton Detective Agency gave up on. That right there should tell you something. Alan Pinkerton would go on to say that it was too costly to try to hunt these boys down because they were traveling freely. They could go wherever they want without even having to hide. And if they did have to hide, they had plenty of places to go. All around the South and even in the North. So with all this behind us and that being said, my name is Justin, this is Mysterious Circumstances, and you're listening to part two of the life, death, and conspiracy of Jesse James. Jesse entirely comes of age in a war-torn society. The Kansas-Missouri border is just about the most dangerous place on earth. No allegiance is safe. If you say uh, you're a Union sympathizer, you're cooked. If you say you're a Southern sympathizer, that was the wrong thing. You could lose your life, you could lose your property, you could lose your family. It was not a safe place to be. Jesse James had learned to kill from bloody Bill Anderson. Bill Anderson was a man-killing machine, a homicidal maniac. Bill was willing to let Jesse James ride with him. The Civil War killed everything that Bill Anderson stood for or hoped for. The Union occupation forces of Missouri made an enemy of Bill Anderson. They made an enemy of the devil. His men scalp. They mutilate. They terrorize. They wore scalps and body parts on their bodies and on their horses. He is so shaped by this that Jesse can never be a normal person. And uh, a lot of these guys were trained to fight, but no one trained them how to stop fighting. When the war ended, Jesse James tried to surrender. He rides into town under a white flag, and he is shot in the chest by uh, Union soldiers. I don't know how you try to surrender and you're shot, and you think you've got any chance of leading a normal life after that. 
everybody wants a hero. The South was actually hurting from losing the war, and this seemed like what was left up to them, and they just kind of continued the war. As notorious and as ruthless and as vicious as Jesse James was, it was an extraordinary event where the governor of the state conspires to assassinate one of his citizens. Jesse, on the other hand, believed that it was all a ploy, that if they rode into Jefferson City or any place else to give themselves up, they would be hung immediately. The attention he'd gotten only fed his ambition to be seen even more widely as a Confederate hero. At this moment, I think he saw it not as a chance to give up his life of crime, but in fact, to take it to another level. Right, couple quick things to get out of the way real quick. One, our live show in Milford, Ohio. It's right outside of Cincinnati, April 14th, 7 p.m. at Roosters. Uh, come out and join us. It's going to be me, Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories, and Rob and Nick from uh, Ohio Podcast. Come on out. Each of us are doing our own separate episode while we're there. Shane's from Out of the Shadows. Uh, all my regular listeners obviously know uh, know him. We're both going to be there presenting our episode as well. We're going to have merchandise. It's going to be a good time. The owner of the joint has agreed to let us stay there until close. So show up, watch three live episodes, hang out. We're going to do a meet and greet beforehand. We're going to do a QA and a after, afterward, and we're just going to hang out and have a good time. So come on out. Tickets are 10 bucks. You can only get them online. I believe as of right now, there's a little bit under 20 left. We've sold 50 of them so far, so seats are getting really, really limited. So if you're wanting to go, come hang out, meet everybody, and chill. Get those tickets now. You can find uh, the links posted on either one of our Facebook pages. It's pretty easy to find. It's going to be a really, really cool time. Um, other than that, researching Jesse James has probably been one of the coolest things I think I've done. I mean, it's right up there with Billy the Kid for me personally. It's so interesting. Like, this dude was all over the place. Uh, for those of you who do not know, Jesse James was around Nashville a lot in the later part of his life. There's a lot of good tourist attractions there for Jesse James. So if you get bored at CrimeCon, you're waiting for shit to go down, you get there early, you're staying later, you know, go out and check out some of these sites. I'm going to be there. Uh, me and Shane's going to be there too. Obviously, a lot of podcasters are going to be there. Come on out, see us. I'm going to be hosting a meetup at one of the bars in the Opry, Gaylord Opry Land Hotel and Convention Center, whatever the hell you want to call it. It's going to be on Friday night about 9, 930. I'm not 100% which bar it's going to be at yet, but I will keep you updated on that. Um, anything else? Uh, yeah, the, the pronunciation of Kearney, Missouri is actually Kearney, Missouri. So I do apologize for Missouri natives for that. I heard it pronounced two different ways on the few documentaries that I did see. Uh, and obviously on the numerous, numerous, numerous articles that I did read, it does not show the pronunciation. So, um, 
you know, there's that. I apologize about that. But I suppose with that, on with the show. Now, where we left off in part one was right about the Pinkerton raid or the failed Pinkerton raid on the James farm. Now, you know, obviously they maimed their mother pretty bad. They killed their half-brother in an explosion. Now, word was that the James boys were there, so the Pinkertons and a couple of locals from Clay County did this raid uh, and tried to flush them out. Obviously, the James brothers were not there. One of their neighbors supposedly was the guy who tipped off the Pinkertons about them being there. Uh, needless to say, not long after the failed uh, raid, that gentleman was found with two bullet holes in his head, and they were said to have been a gift from Frank James. And that's, you know, another thing. As badass as Jesse James was, I can tell you right now, Frank James, I think, was a little bit worse after doing all this research. That dude was an animal. Sorry, I had to light that cigarette real quick. But anywho... So what starts happening now is people start getting a lot of sympathy for the Jameses. The minister of propaganda, John Newman Edwards, who had befriended the Jameses uh, and started backing their cause and printing all these articles for Jesse and, you know, portraying him as a Robin Hood, as a hero type for the South. He's like, we can use this. We can really, really use this. The whole country, after this happens with the failed Pinkerton raid, starts kind of saying, you know what? Like, maybe Jesse James is a victim here. Uh, maybe they are just picking on him because of, you know, his affiliations with the militias and, you know, Quantrill and all that good stuff. So they kind of start swaying in his direction. And this is not only people in the South, but people in the North too. Just because the Pinkertons and a couple of locals literally almost killed his mom. They did kill his half-brother and they injured other people in the house as well. So the Pinkertons quit chasing the James boys because it ends up being too costly for them. You know, think about that for a second. The Pinkertons quit chasing Jesse James, that is unheard of, and that just propels his legend just a little bit more. But what John Newman Edwards is also doing now is he sees this as an opportunity, and he sees it as an opportunity to maybe get the boys on the right path. Frank, right around this time, him and Jesse, they decide to go to Nashville and they're they're going to lay low for a little while because they know the heat's on them. You know, obviously their neighbors are trying to give them up where they're at for reward money, all this stuff. So they decide to uh, lay low for a little bit, and they end up moving to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, right around, you know, January, February, March, early 1875. What John Newman Edwards is trying to do is he's pretty much trying to push the state legislators for amnesty of war crimes and for a fair trial if the boys go in and surrender and do give themselves up. Now, Frank is all about this. Frank is about to have a kid. He wants to settle down, and he wants to turn himself in. Jesse, on the other hand, is so paranoid right now. 
he thinks it's a trap. He thinks that if they walk in and surrender themselves, that they're going to be hanged right there on the spot. And he does, you know, kind of have a point because they did some shit during the war, let alone after the war. That is unforgivable. Okay. And yeah, this is like 10 years after the war ended, but you got to think reconstructions going on right now. There's an economic depression going on right now. You know, besides the reconstruction, you have white supremacist groups who are down there ruining the reconstruction. So it's like, you know, the reconstruction, it's all just kind of treading water right there. So Jesse, you know, instead of wanting to turn himself in, he decides that he's going to take it to the next level. He's like, his whole train of thought is we have their sympathy now. Like they believe us. They can see what's going on and that, you know, we we were the victims and that we're doing this for a reason and we have a cause. So he decides to up the game a little bit. Now on August 31st, 1875 in Nashville, Tennessee, Jesse James Jr. is born. Obviously, Jesse is extremely happy about this, but it doesn't take him long to get back in the game. On his birthday, September 5th, 1875, as a little present to himself, him and the younger, him and the James Younger gang robbed the Huntington Bank in Huntington, West Virginia. They robbed it of about ten to twenty thousand dollars, which today. Uh, would equal to about two hundred and ninety to five hundred and seventy five thousand uh, dollars. The only person injured in this shootout was one of the gang members. Then there they go on July seventh, eighteen seventy six. They robbed the Missouri Pacific Railroad train. They robbed it of uh, fifteen thousand dollars, which today would be about four hundred and thirty thousand dollars. And they decide to chill out for a little bit, only about a month or so. And the heat is really, really on them now. If it wasn't before, it really, really is now. So they decide to head north. There's a lot of debate, first off, on the simplest fact of whether they took a train or whether they rode their horses there. That fact doesn't matter. What does matter is why they went to the St. Paul Minneapolis, Minnesota area. It's debated on whether they went up there to lay low and visit a friend by the name of Blackjack Chin. Uh, I don't know if his last name is pronounced Shin or Chin. It's C-H-I-N-N. But he was a former colonel with Quantrill who who participated in a lot of uh, battles in Kentucky and Tennessee with the James brothers. Uh, during the Civil War, so he was definitely a friendly. Well, Chin lived up there, and he was breeding draft horses, and he opened up a gambling house, and it's debated on whether they went up there to kind of lay low, or if they went up there to rob a bank. Now, that would end up being known as the Northfield Robbery. Now, they get up there, and apparently what happens is one of the gang members finds out that a major depositor, a guy by the name of uh, Adelbert Ames, is putting his money in the Northfield Bank in Northfield, Minnesota. Now, he had a personal vendetta against this guy for a few various reasons. Like I said, this area right in here is is highly debatable, but... We do know that he goes up there and they go and they hang out with, uh, you know, Chin. Chin puts him up, 
gives them a place to stay, gives them a place to gamble, and he also gives them the best horses that he has for this robbery. Now what happens next is Justin turning on high production mode to take you firsthand into the Northfield robbery. On September 7th, 1876, Jesse James, Frank James, Cole, Bob, and Jim Younger, Charlie Pitts, Bill Chadwell, and Clell Miller are all carousing around in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is about 400 miles north of Kearney, Missouri. They buy the best draft horses that they can buy off of a wartime friend by the name of Blackjack Chin, and they decide to head 40 miles south and rob the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. They're armed with four to six pistols each and wearing all white dusters to conceal their weapons. When they get into town, they separate into two groups. Jesse James, Jim Younger, and Bill Chadwell go to the escape route and post up there, positioning their horses near the iron bridge on the northwest edge of town, around the corner from the bank. Cole Younger and Clell Miller guard the front door as Frank James, Bob Younger, and Charlie Pitts go inside the bank. When they walk in the bank, they see three cashiers. The first person they see directly in front of them is Joseph Haywood. Directly behind him is the bank vault. The next cashier they see directly to the left is a man named Alonzo Bunker. And as the corner wraps around, going towards the back door, they see another one by the name of Frank Wilcox. Frank James pulls his gun and demands that the safe be opened. Haywood lies to him and tells him that the bank vault is on a timer and that it can't be opened. While this is going on outside, one of the Northfield citizens by the name of J.S. Allen is a little bit suspicious. A lot of these citizens of Northfield are veterans and they've seen guerrilla warfare tactics before. J.S. Allen walks up to the bank and he tries to look inside but is turned away by Clell Miller who drew his pistol and started cursing at him. Allen then runs into the nearby store and sounds the alarm, yelling that the bank is being robbed and telling everyone to grab their guns. Cole Younger fires a warning shot into the air telling everyone to clear the streets and nobody would get hurt. A pedestrian walking by named Nicholas Gustafsson was a Swedish immigrant. He didn't understand English very well so he fails to comply, earning him a single shot to the head. He would die from the injury four days later. By that time, Jesse, Jim Younger, and Bill Chadwell hear the commotion and ride into the streets firing their pistols to deter any citizens from interfering. Meanwhile, inside the bank, Frank James is growing very frustrated. Bonker tries running towards the back door and he makes it out into the alley getting shot in the shoulder by Charlie Pitts on the way. Because Haywood would not open the safe, Frank James puts a knife to Haywood's throat, hits him with the butt of the pistol, and cocks it, and tells him again to open up the bank vault. 
Joseph Haywood refuses. While the James Younger gang attempted to clear the streets, what they are actually doing is forcing themselves out into the open street and the citizens of Northfield, Minnesota behind cover where they start grabbing weapons and firing back. A man named Elias Stacy grabs a shotgun, sends a shell of birdshot into Clell Miller's face, knocking him off his horse. Another man named Henry Wheeler grabbed a rifle and ran to the second floor window of the Dampier Hotel. His shot killed Miller. As Cole Younger ran to check on his friend, a man by the last name of Manning put a bullet in the outlaw's hip. A short while later, Manning killed Chadwell. Cole Younger yelled at the bank door. For God's sakes, boys, hurry up. It's getting too hot for us. At that point in time, the would-be robbers decide to give up and leave the bank. As they are walking out the door, a frustrated Frank James turns around, fires one single shot at Joseph Charles Haywood, and kills him instantly. When the would-be robbers walk out into the street, what they find is a full-on gunfight. The surviving outlaws start heading south as fast as they can, having to outrun posses numbering upwards of a thousand men. The failed robbery attempt hits Jesse James right where it hurts in his ego. This entire chain of events lasted no more than seven minutes. And we get out of production mode, back into reality mode. So roughly about three miles south of Northfield, the wounded outlaws stop in the Cannon River. They stop there to uh, to clean up their wounds a little bit. Now, they make it down to Shieldsville, and what they were planning on doing was heading south all the way through Iowa, uh, hitting Missouri, and then heading back to Nashville, Tennessee. So when they make it to Shieldsville, there's a posse that actually beat them there. Now, since the guys beat them there, apparently they were thirsty, so they decide to step in a bar, and they, uh, they're they having some beers, and they leave their guns unloaded in a wagon. Now, the gang just happens to arrive about five minutes later to water their horses. Well, when the posse comes outside, uh, they pretty much are staring down the barrel of a shitload of pistols. And, uh, you know, the outlaws pretty much rode away, which was kind of embarrassing for the posse. But what it did was it deterred them to the southwest as opposed to going straight south. Now, the gang is pretty wounded. All the surviving members are wounded, with the exception of Jesse and Frank James, who are unscathed in all this. Now, they're the wounded members, they're losing blood. On the day of September 7th, it had consecutively rained for 14 days straight. So they're cold, they're wet, they're hungry. Now, the outlaws do elude capture um, for two weeks in unfamiliar woods with not very much food. And like I had stated, there were various posses that totaled upwards of a thousand men. 
At some point in time, the James boys do break off from the the rest of the gang and start heading uh, further south. Now, the Youngers and uh, the rest of the gang, they end up around LaSalle, and they are actually overtaken by uh, one of the posses in Medelia. Now, the Youngers and Pitts, uh, they were not going to surrender. They figured if they were going to surrender, they were going to get hanged right there on the nearest tree, so they decide to fight it out. There were seven volunteers from this posse who volunteered to, like, walk straight up into this gang and just straight up shoot it out. Uh, when it was all said and done, the youngers were really, really badly wounded and Pitts was dead. Uh, I know one of the youngers did die, uh, on the streets of Northfield. Cole Younger was shot 11 times and still lived. One of the rounds that hit Cole Younger went through his left jaw and lodged behind his right eye. So when you see that very famous picture of him after the Northfield robbery where his right eye is swollen shut, that's not from a fight. That's because when that picture was taken, he still was arrested, sat up for a picture with 11 bullets in him. One of them lodged behind his fucking eye. And still did 25 years in prison after this. I believe it was the three surviving members did uh, get 25 years in prison. All of them served their time. Cole Younger actually went on to say that Frank James was the person who shot Joseph Haywood inside the bank. Uh, he also said that he was offered early parole if he would just admit that the James brothers were involved in that bank robbery, and he did not do it. He served a full 25 years in prison and still lived afterward. Uh, when he got out of prison, he ended up meeting up with Frank James afterward and uh, doing uh, like a Wild West show, which was pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, you want to talk about a hardcore dude? Uh, Cole Younger was it. <laughs> Cole Younger was it. Now, the James boys, on the other hand, you know, kind of the trail goes cold. Nobody knows really what happened to them too much. They do head to Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, we do know that on September 25th, a guy by the name of Dr. Sidney P. Mosher was riding to see a patient when Frank and Jesse did stop him. Frank and him tra traded clothes. Frank needed some new clothes. And they pretty much sent him on, the, the, on his way. They really didn't harm him or do anything. They had no reason to. They did end up making it back down to Missouri and then into to Nashville. After this bank robbery is when it gets even more interesting because... First of all, this is a hit to Jesse James's ego. He has never failed a bank robbery. But at the same time, you know, they made a lot of crucial mistakes. Yeah, you know, there were a couple old union uh, politicians, generals, what you know, whatever they were, Adelbert Ames, and then there was another one. I cannot, I think his last name was Benjamin, or his first name was Benjamin. I can't exactly remember, but they were depositing a lot of money into the Northfield Bank, and that, you know, that is one of the reasons they target it. And there was a lot of money from other surrounding smaller banks that were funneling into that one. So they had the right idea, but a lot of the citizens in the Minnesota area were union 
veterans. So when they saw the James Younger gang posting up in the way they did, they were familiar with guerrilla warfare tactics that the Confederacy used to use. So they they almost immediately grew suspicious. That and the horses that the gang had. Uh, these were the finest bred horses around. You know, they were not plow horses from Minnesota. So that immediately drew attention to them as well, let alone their all white. And, you know, dusters weren't really all that suspicious, but all white dusters closed. You know, it's a little bit warm. Average temperature around Minnesota at this time is right around 70 degrees. So, you know, that drew a little bit of suspicion too. And the other part where they screwed up is when they did start, you know, the, the warning shots, the firing of the shots, um, what they were doing was leaving themselves in the open out in the street. And that's when all the Northfield residents started taking cover and grabbing weapons. And it was pretty much like a shooting gallery and it, it hurt the gang bad. The, I mean, that, tore the James Younger gang apart. There was nothing left. The only two people that weren't dead or in prison were Frank and Jesse James. Now, when the South hears the story about this, because John Newman Edwards gets a hold of this and finds out, because like I said, he was close and personal with the James brothers. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's pretty fucking amazing. They got out of this unscathed, not... One single wound from what I understand. I do think uh, Frank was was wounded in the attempted robbery. But these guys made it 400 miles back home in unfamiliar territory with not much ammunition. I read in one article that they didn't even have their horses, which I really don't... I find that really hard to believe because if they would have ran into anybody along the way, you can guarantee there would have been somebody who said, yeah, these guys uh, stole my horse, you know. So they still made it 400 miles back home, dodging posses that totaled upwards of a thousand men. That is crazy shit right there. Now, when John Newman Edwards gets a hold of this, he plays it up. He plays it up real good. So these guys, Frank and Jesse, end up being, again, heroes, you know, public, you know. I mean, after the last few robberies, yeah, it's starting to damage their reputation, but, you know, they end up being heroes again. And uh, after, after Northfield, when they do make it back to Nashville, they end up changing their names and start going into hiding. Jesse changes his name to J.D. Howard. And uh, Frank changes his to B.J. Woodson, and they just kind of settle down. They really uh, start getting pretty quiet in early February 1878. You know, we're jumping forward in the timeline a little bit because they do. They chill out for quite a while. Uh, Frank is raising hogs. He's growing corn. He's living a pretty quiet life and he's really enjoying it. He's not hiding from anybody. He has a lot of money from the robberies that they just committed in the last year. Uh, on February 6th, 1878, Frank does have his one and only, uh, child. He names him, uh, Robert Franklin James. Names him after his father, which was, you know, pretty awesome. Uh, so he's, he's happy. Jesse, on the other hand, you know, he's, you know, getting ready to have another kid too. Uh, his wife is pregnant with their daughter, Mary. 
who was born on June 17th, 1879. Uh, what he's doing is kind of entrepreneur type shit. He cornered the corn market in their county and is making really good money doing that, plus the money from the robberies. Plus, he's buying racehorses and entering them in races all over the South. So he's making money off of that or losing money. We're not 100% sure, but he was kind of an entrepreneur and he's, you know, kind of chilling out a little bit too. By late 1879, money does start getting tight. So Jesse James needs a new gang. In that summer, late summer of 1879, he goes back to Missouri to recruit some new members. And the guys that he recruits are not like his old gang. His old gang was a bunch of ex-Confederate guerrilla military, like trained, trained militants. You know what I'm saying? These dudes were veterans. They were not scared to kill and they were smart. When he goes back to Missouri, he specifically goes back to what they refer to as the Burnt District, where people are still pissed off, trying to rebuild their lives, and he recruits like a couple family members, some local thieves, some farmhands, just some straight-up killers, man. He's got guys that got nothing to lose, and you know, and that was that would end up being a pretty big mistake for him. Now, on October eighth, eighteen seventy-nine. The newly formed James Gang robs the Chicago, Alton, and St. Louis train in Glendale, Missouri for $40,000. Today, that would equal to about $1 million. Now, because Jesse James had not had his name in the papers for a while, and he is kind of fading from notoriety, and everything I've read and some of the action, some of his actions, he really did enjoy the attention. So when he gets on the train, he uh, pistol whips the express manager and he leaves a press release simply stating, We are the boys that are hard to handle and will make it hot for the party that ever tries to take us. And that was that. They robbed that train of $40,000, which would equal to about $1 million today. On September 3rd, 1880, they uh, decide to pretty much go on a just vicious, fast-paced robbery spree. Uh, Jesse James is back in the papers. You know, they uh, rob a stagecoach in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky for $2,000, which would equal to about $50,000 today. At this time, too, it really sucks because public opinion really starts swaying you know, the war is over. A lot of the can old Confederate sympathizers are getting back into political office. And, you know, as time has kind of passed, like there's really no excuse for what he was doing at this point in time. Like Jesse James before was kind of fighting for the fact that the South, whether they were guilty or not, was treated so badly during and after the Civil War. Whether you were a slave owner or not, if you lived in a Confederate state, you were guilty by association and you were disenfranchised and you were stripped of your citizenship. You weren't allowed to vote. I mean, that's what Jesse James was initially fighting for, was the unfairness of all of that. 
because like I, you know, had explained in part one and at the beginning of this episode, there's so many underlying things about the Civil War that people do not know. And I, I honestly, I urge you guys to do your own research and look up kind of some of these things that I'm telling you about. You will be surprised. I can guarantee you that you will be surprised, but the public opinion gets so bad for Jesse James because it's like, hey, like you've been fighting, you know, you stated in all these letters to the public that you're fighting for, you know, your guys' rights again as Southerners. And a lot of the people getting back into the higher federal government offices were straight up Confederates or Confederate sympathizers. So everything that he always said that he was fighting for is coming to pass. It's happening. So the spree is so vicious. I mean, in March 11th, 1881, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, you know, they robbed this dude of 5,200 bucks, you know, the equivalent of $125,000. They robbed a paymaster is what they called him. You know, John Newman Edwards himself can't even go to bat for the James brothers or the James gang at this point in time. Like he straight up told, tells Jesse James, he's like, listen, like I can't back you anymore. There's literally no excuse for what you guys are doing. And I think Jesse at this point is just like, you know what? There's no turning back. The public opinion is so bad about Jesse James right now. All these bad newspaper articles, I mean, he's back in the newspaper, so he's happy, he's making good money, you know, he's got a family at home waiting for him that, you know, at this point, Z, his wife, is really trying to tell him, like, hey, we're fine, why Why are we doing this, why, why do you keep doing this, and Jesse James just keeps going, and I think at this point, he's just getting so pissed, I don't know. He's just on a vendetta. He's just on a vendetta. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it gets to the point where like on July 15th, 1881, they're in Winston, Missouri. They robbed the Chicago, Rock Island and Pacific Railroad train. When they get on the train, Jesse James identifies himself and straight up announces to all the people on board. I'm Jesse James. If we're going to be wicked, we might as well make a good job of it. After that, he steals about $2,000 of all their jewelry and money, which we'd equal to about $50,000 today. Uh, Frank ends up killing one of the passengers by the name of Frank McMillan and the conductor, William Westfall, and they hightail it out of there. I mean, you know, they're, they're digging their own graves at this point. Uh, on September 7th, 1881, this would be their last train robbery that we do know of. Uh, Documented-wise, it is their last train robbery. I don't know about altogether robbery, but they robbed the Chicago and Alton train near Glendale, Missouri, and they robbed that of $3,000, which would be about $72,000 today. And after this, they go back home. The heat is on so bad right now. They go back, they move to, back to Missouri, uh, on Christmas Eve, 1881. Jesse moves his family and they move them, they end up moving to St. Joe, Missouri. What happens next is really, really weird. Believe it or not, the reputation of Jesse James and this little group of like eight or nine men has literally almost killed the state of Missouri. 
it makes property values drop so much that settlers are not moving there. There's no businesses that are moving there because of the reputation. It was literally called the robber state. I mean, Jesse James and his small gang of guys single-handedly drove down the property value of an entire state. Let that sink in for a second. And it gets to the point where the newly appointed governor, Governor Thomas Crittenden, he issues a proclamation. And what he does is he gets a bunch of money from the railroads. They all contributed a bunch of money. And he issues a reward for Jesse James and Frank James, dead or alive. He wants them arrested. He wants them gone. As well as a lot of the state. I mean, at some point, the one of Jesse James' own neighbors was conspiring to assassinate him. You know, that's some of the rumor of why he left Kearney, Missouri and went and moved his family on Christmas Eve to St. Joe, Missouri. Everybody just didn't want anything to do with this guy. I mean, Frank James was done. He walked away. After that last train robbery, he's like, I'm done, little brother. Like, we are fine. We got plenty of money. I'm leaving. You know, he ends up going and doing his own thing. And while they're living living in St. Joe... You know, Jesse James does have his new gang. His neighbors really don't know who he is. He had changed his name from J.D. Howard to Thomas Howard at this point. And he's telling all his neighbors he's renting a little house on, a, I think it's like Fairfield Avenue or Fairfax Avenue. I'm not 100% sure. Just a little street. Renting a house for like eight bucks a month. You know what I mean? And all his neighbors know him as a cattle buyer. They have really no idea who he is. Jesse James's own kids didn't even know who he is. They didn't even know their real last name. Z right now, I mean, he still has a lot of robberies planned at this point. And this is early 1882. But Z is really, really pushing him to just stop. Um, she wants her husband. You know, she wants the kids to have a father. So he tells Z... That he just wants to do one last robbery and then he'll be done and retire and uh, become the gentleman farmer that, you know, he eventually did want to become and what Z wanted him to become now. So he agrees with his wife to do one last robbery. But this robbery never comes to pass. Jesse James is, because of this $10,000 reward, is so fucking paranoid he had already killed one member of his gang that he was suspicious of he had hunted down another one i don't think he ever found him and in order to keep tabs on some of his gang members he does invite a couple of them to stay with him now two of these gang members are robert and charlie ford and Robert and Charlie Ford are very close with Jesse. Uh, they did actually live with him uh, for a certain amount of time. I'm not exactly sure how long, but they were very, very close with Jesse. Uh, now, Jesse had ridden with Charlie Ford before. Uh, Bob Ford was really, really new to the gang. He didn't join up until the last couple robberies. Now, Robert Ford honestly was kind of an asshole. But as you guys know, like Jesse James was killed by Robert Ford. 
Now, how this all ends up coming to pass is now Robert Ford, like I had said, was, you know, a newer member of the gang. Now, he wanted notoriety. He wanted what Jesse James had. He wanted the money that Jesse James supposedly had. I mean, they were pretty much living like they were in poverty. They they didn't really have all that much money. Now, a little bit of the backstory here. In January of 1882, about four months before he kills Jesse James, Dick Little, Wood, a guy named Wood Height, and Robert Ford are pretty much, uh, they're on the run from the law at this point, and they are uh, hanging out at Robert Ford's sister-in-law's house. And they're at breakfast one day, and they're arguing about how fast they can draw their guns. So they're having a little contest, and there's four shots that ring out from Wood Heights' gun. What happens is one of the bullets struck Dick Little in the leg. He pretty much just falls to the floor. Dick did return fire, and he hit Height in the arm. Now, Bob Ford drew his gun just because he was, you know, Dick Little was a very, very good friend of his, and he fired one shot, and he ended up killing Wood Height with one shot to the head. You know, Wood Height only lived for a couple minutes after that. He died almost instantly. Well, what Robert Ford did was he wrapped him in a blanket, carried him outside, put him on a mule, took him into the woods, and buried him in a shallow, unmarked grave. Having committed this murder, and his greed, and his desire for the notoriety, is pretty much what killed Jesse James at the end of the day. Now, the authorities heard about this shooting, and Robert Ford was arrested, but he informed the detectives that he had access to Jesse James, that he was a member of the gang, and that he could, in fact, bring him in or kill him. Now, Robert Ford himself, both the Ford brothers, and most of the James gang, they were scared to death of Jesse James. He would kill somebody at the drop of a hat, and he was super paranoid at this point, and he had already killed gang members. So, what he did was him and Dick Little met in secret with the Missouri governor, Thomas Crittenden, and they pretty much formulated a plan. The governor... And Bob Ford knew that Jesse James wouldn't be taken alive. Robert Ford was scared of him. And even if there was a chance to take him in alive, Jesse James never took off his guns. Ever. So there was no doubt that there was going to be a gunfight of some sort. And they pretty much knew that they were going to have to kill Jesse James. So in the literal sense of the phrase, the governor of Missouri, along with Robert Ford, secretly conspired to assassinate Jesse James in January or February of 1882, just a few months before he actually was killed. Because they knew he wouldn't make an attempt to arrest him, he would get the reward money, and there's more than likely a chance that he would be arrested for murder, but the governor does have the power to pardon him if he does. So that was the agreement. How this all goes is Robert Ford would get a pardon for killing Wood Height, 
which he was guilty of, and the eventual pardon uh, for killing Jesse James, and he would get the $10,000 reward money, and he would pretty much be famous for being the man that shot and killed Jesse James. So that was the plan. Now, it is kind of debated on whether or not Charlie Ford even had knowledge of this going on. Charlie Ford, like I said, had ridden with Jesse before and knew him and actually liked the guy. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation. Personally, I don't think Charlie really even knew about it until the morning of it happening. And how that goes is on April 3rd, 1882, at about 8.30 p.m., um, it's Jesse James, it's, it's Charlie Ford and it's Robert Ford and they're saddling their horses and getting ready for a long ride. Like I had mentioned previously, this was said to be Jesse James's last robbery. He was going to retire from all this after this. He had promised his wife he wanted to just settle down after he got one big score and just be a farmer and retire with his with his family and they they really needed the money to jumpstart this and to be taken care of there so you know they're going in and out of the house they're saddling their horses getting ready for this ride and they're you know coming in the house eating breakfast now while they're at breakfast Z and Jesse's two kids were in the house at the time and supposedly before they even got there Robert Ford had informed his brother Charlie on the plan. And Charlie supposedly was not okay with it. He was very, very nervous. Now, while they're eating breakfast there at Jesse James's table, um, Jesse is going in and out of the house, uh, saddling up the horses, getting everything ready for this long ride for the last robbery. And Z notices that Charlie is kind of sweating while he's eating breakfast. And uh, she thought he was sick. Well, like I said, what she didn't really realize is that he had just been informed of this plot to kill her husband. So he's kind of freaking out right now because he doesn't know what's going to happen. Because like I said, Jesse James never takes off his guns. And he knew that Jesse James would not go out without a fight. Well, as a twist of fate would have it, it was extremely hot this day. So while Jesse is going in and out of the house, saddling up these horses, he takes his coat off and he goes and sets it in the bedroom. Now, because he had told his neighbors and stuff like that, that he, uh, you know, was a cattle buyer, he couldn't be seen going in and out of his house armed to the teeth with these pistols hanging off of him. He didn't want to draw any kind of suspicion. Robert Ford himself would later go on to say that was the only time he had ever seen Jesse James take his guns off. He goes into the bedroom, he takes off his gun belt, and he sets his uh, pistols on the bed with his coat, and he continues going about what he's doing. Now, since the door was open, a little bit of dust had collected on one of the pictures there in the uh, side room next to the kitchen. Now, Jesse James was... You know, supposedly pretty OCD about stuff like this. So he goes to wipe the dust off of this picture. And while he's doing that, Z, his wife, and his two kids are in the kitchen. Jesse James has his back turned. He hears the cocking of a pistol. Robert Ford points the barrel about four feet away from the back of his head. 
he hears the gun cock and he knows that sound. There's one shot fired. It goes in just below his the back of his right ear and enters out his eye. He falls up against the wall and onto the floor onto his back. Now hearing the gunshot, immediately the kids start crying and they come running out. Z comes running out with the kids to see Jesse James on the floor, shot in the head. Meanwhile, Robert Ford goes running out of the house screaming, I just killed Jesse James. I just killed Jesse James. Charlie Ford is still standing there by the kitchen table and he looks at Z and puts his hands up and he's just, he doesn't know what to say. He's like, it was an accident. It was an accident. It wasn't supposed to happen. And then he goes running out of the house. Now, Jesse James, whether he died instantly, we do not know. But while his kids are crying there, a witness to this, uh, Z picks up Jesse James's head, puts it on her lap. She takes off her apron and tries to stop the bleeding. Obviously, it didn't work. And at the age of 34, Jesse James was dead. The repercussions of this are really interesting. I mean, you know, Zarelda James, who ironically enough told Jesse that she didn't trust the Fords, specifically Robert Ford. She said that he gave her a funny feeling. She didn't trust him. You know, Jesse didn't listen because he trusted Charlie. So Robert was his brother. So, you know, you know, one with the other, you know, they had to be all right. You know, lo and behold, she, Zerelda ended up being right. Zerelda was offered by a promoter who wanted to take Jesse's body, um, across the country on a tour. She was offered $10,000. She turned it down. $10,000 at that day and time was an extreme amount of money. And Zerelda was extremely poor. She still turned it down. Z, on the other hand, they were left with nothing. Z and Jesse's kids were left with absolutely nothing. They had to move in with Z's brother in Kansas City. I mean, she had to sell her jewelry. She had to sell her furniture. She had to sell the family dog because they had nothing. All this amounted, everything she sold amounted to about $150 in 1880s money. Today, that would have been about $3,500. She refused to write any book about her life with Jesse James. She wore all black from that day on until the day that she died. And she never remarried. She never even went out in public with another man after that. Zerelda ended up taking Jesse's body and having it buried outside of her window in her front yard so she could always be with her son. You know, it was, it was bad. I mean, Zerelda turned down a lot of money to, you know, have a guy take her son's corpse around the fucking country to be shown off. Uh, Bob Ford was arrested for the murder of Jesse James and he was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Now, almost immediately when the verdict came in, he was pardoned by that said governor that he had made that secret deal with. So he ended up getting off. Now, I believe it was about 10 years later, 10 or 15 years later, 
Uh, he himself was murdered by a guy in Creed, Colorado, uh, in a saloon. So he ended up getting his at the end. I hate to say it, but good, you know, fuck him. For the people immediate to Jesse James, I think is who it affected the most. You know, he was not only a notorious, vicious outlaw who would murder and rob, but he was also a son, he was a brother, he was a husband, and he was a father. And to those people, like, his legend didn't matter because they knew who he really was. No matter what was written about him in the newspapers, whether he was a Confederate guerrilla that participated in one of the most brutal massacres in Civil War history, they didn't care. Because they knew who he really was. To the rest of the country, it was the death of a legend. And the events surrounding his death gained him more legend status. And it really is interesting to see just because almost immediately a rumor started popping up that Jesse James faked his own death. That it was a guy named Charlie Bigelow who had ridden with the gang that did look a lot like Jesse James. But I think more of where part three is going to go is not so much the faking of his own death and we will touch on that because i will say that i'll tell you this right now when jesse james's corpse was all said and done this guy had 33 scars attributed to bullets he was shot at least seven times he was shot twice in the same lung now imagine that today if you get shot in the lung that's a mortal wound back in 1882 I mean, you're sure as shit almost going to die for it, let alone back 1870s, you know what I'm saying? Like, he was shot twice in the same lung. He had 33 scars that were attributed to bullet wounds. This dude was a legend. His escape from Northfield cleared back down into Missouri, back over to Nashville. The fact that he had so many chances to give himself up. I mean... Frank James ended up turning himself in later that year, and he was tried for the uh, the robbery and uh, one of the murders that they had committed there in the later years, and a Missouri jury actually acquitted him. I mean, there was a good chance that if these guys would have taken the opportunity that they had when they had it and turned themselves in, Jesse James probably wouldn't be Jesse James and who he is today, and who we see him as today. I guess above anything else that, you know, with Jesse James's reputation, you know, there's a lot of, you know, bullshit information out there, and I hope that I at least helped you guys to see where Jesse James came from, and see why he did some of the things he did, and why he started down the path that he did. Because that's the part of the story that not that many people know about. I mean, if you were in his shoes at 15 years old and experienced a lot of that stuff, what would you do? You know, ask yourself that question. What would you do? You know, it's hard to say because you've never been in that situation. So I suppose, I don't know. I mean, before I do go, I'll tell you this much. 
I got to thank Thomas from uh, from the group. He's been a longtime listener. He's lent me his voice before. Thank you so much, Thomas, for lending me your voice and giving Jesse James a voice in this episode. I greatly, greatly appreciate that, dude. Um, it was last minute. You came through for me, and thank you. Thank you. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed a little bit of the production that I threw in there. It's something that I've never really done. You know, I figured I'd uh, lighten up the Northfield rate a little bit. But from this episode and from part one, you know, walk away with the fact that you know Jesse James's story a little bit better than the next guy, more than likely. Maybe you know a little bit more facts about the Civil War that you didn't know before and the situation that Jesse James was in in the early years. Now, granted, I'm not justifying any of his actions, but I'm telling you, you know, this is what he was into. This is how it happened. This is why it happened. But the real question, all right, is in 15 years of robbery, Jesse James accumulated $200,000 just to himself. And that's only the money that is documented. That doesn't include his racehorse investments. That doesn't include him cornering the corn market in, you know, his county in Tennessee. $200,000 in that day would equal now to about $5 million. When he died, his wife and kids had absolutely nothing. So in part three, we're going to explore not only some of the, you know, J. Frank Dalton rumors, some of the Charlie Bigelow rumors. We're going to probably debunk some of that shit because there was a DNA test done, you know, to pretty much prove that Jesse James was Jesse James. But I think one of the more interesting things was when they did the DNA test on J. Frank Dalton, uh, he actually was not who he said he was. He was not J. Frank Dalton. Honestly, nobody knows who the fuck he was, his DNA showed up absolutely nothing. So, I mean, that's kind of curious all in itself. But the real question is, what did Jesse James do with all of that money that he stole? Yeah, he was known to be a gambler, and probably not a very good one. But can you be a bad enough gambler to spend $5 million just on gambling in 15 years? I don't know. I mean, we're going to try to find out. Or whether or not he was funding a secret organization known as the Knights of the Golden Circle, whose sole purpose was one day the Confederacy would rise again. So on that note, stay tuned after the music for uh, some reviews, and I imagine I will see you folks on the flip side. First and foremost, uh, these are from iTunes. They're from the USA. First off is Beth Sullivan, five stars, says, love the podcast. It says, so interesting. Justin is so smart, really analyzes the cases. Uh, he doesn't just read. He is engaged. Love it. Uh, Beth, thank you very much. I'm actually not, you know, that fucking smart. I just do my research. I mean, I, I got a pretty solid memory for the most part, but, um, 
you know, I do like to be engaged. That was one of the things that I set out to do when I first created this podcast is not just read a piece of paper to everybody to actually make it feel more like a conversation and just, you know, hanging out, talking about some, some mysterious shit. So I'm really glad that you love it. And I did see your review on the Facebook page as well. So thank you very, very much for taking the time to leave that review. Um, it does help me get found. I mean, you know, whether it's three, one, two, three, four, and five star, the more reviews, you know, the more my podcast pops up, but to be honest with you, the best way to support the show is word of mouth. You know, if you're in a Facebook group, if you're on Instagram, you know, post something, say something, say, Hey man, check out this guy's show. If you know, if there's a certain topic or something like that. But Beth Sullivan, thank you very much, dear. I appreciate that. Um, next one is uh, Salasco. I hope that's how you pronounce that. Um, five stars. It says, awesome. It says, found this podcast through California Dreaming. Great work, Justin. Well, as you guys all know, I am a fan of Roseanne's. She is an amazing podcaster, an amazing storyteller, too. Uh, she does very interesting cases there that are not done to death by other podcasts you know what i'm saying she's not she's not the podcaster who waits until somebody else puts out a new episode and then listens to that episode sees how fucking awesome it is and then decides to do one on it uh roseanne you understand what i'm saying with that but uh, anyway Salasco, thank you very much, and I'm glad that, uh, you know, me and Roseanne's kind of double teaming up on a couple episodes has helped both of us out with, uh, you know, getting new listeners, because we, we do have that mutual respect for our different styles, and, you know, we both have a lot of the same interests, so thank you very much for leaving that review, I appreciate it. Uh, next up is The Pagan, five stars, hey, what do you know, I'm a pagan too, hmm. uh, it says, uh, He's like Dan Carlin with a potty mouth. It says, and I love it. Uh, Justin knocked it out of the park with the Billy the Kid episodes, and I seriously cannot wait for the rest of the Jesse James series. Keep up the good work, brother. You know what? Thank you very much. Um, I've never, I know who Dan Carlin is, don't get me wrong, but I've never really listened to his uh, podcast, so I will definitely take that as a compliment because I know he is badass from what I've heard from uh, some listeners of his that are listeners of mine. So thank you very much. I greatly appreciate that. You know, I dip my toes into the history section for the, for the Billy and the Jesse episodes. Uh, I'm kind of digging it. I mean, obviously there's underlying, you know, reasons why I'm doing these episodes, but I do love history. I'm a history nut and it has been a lot of fun and I'm glad that you're enjoying it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, D Brown, zero, three, four, five stars says Justin is a unique, unfiltered and unscripted podcaster. He is so well versed on each subject matter that nothing is rehearsed and he simply breathes life into some very mysterious circumstances. I like the name drop and then they did their name drop. Who's your homicide? Uh, like I've plugged them before. 
They are an amazing podcast. I mean, they're newer. They're very conversational. They're fucking hilarious. Um, but they do come with some great cases and they present it in a really interesting way. So, you know, I can't stress enough. If you guys like my show and the conversational tone, uh, I urge you to check out theirs. They do have some comedy behind theirs. They are funny, but they do present great facts and great cases. So, you know, give them a shot. Check them out. Don't listen to one episode and decide that you fucking hate them like most people do with mine. You know, give a, give a one episode a full listen and, uh, you know, give them a fair shot. They're a good podcast. Uh, next up is JPWV79. Five stars says great work. Says does a great job of looking at both sides. Also has a good bit of research. Uh, we'll call it, we'll call it like it is based off of facts. Um, you're goddamn right. I will. That's, uh, that's one thing that I'm, very annoyed with when podcasters present a case. You, if you notice, a lot of them like to omit facts, facts, especially when they're trying to present their own opinion on a case. That's not fair. That's kind of ripping off your listeners. That's not what I'm about. I'm not trying to live that life. Uh, what I'm trying to do is give you guys the most information that I possibly can so that you guys can make your own judgment. And in order for me to do that, I have to be unbiased. So. Um, I'm glad that you appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, it is very much appreciated. Uh, what do we got now? Libble SP. Libble's P. I'm not sure. Um, five stars says great podcast. Says very good. Very well researched podcast. On episode two of Billy the Kid. And it is awesome. I love it. You haven't even finished it yet. You uh, left me that. It says, my only complaint is random, unnecessary cursing from time to time. I don't mind it, honestly, but it appears in places where it's not needed. Um, you know what? I am inclined to agree with you on that. Um, even if you would have left me a three-star review saying that or a two-star review saying those exact words, I would not have even attempted to get savage on you because... It's constructive criticism, and you're right. I, I admit that, and I've been seriously trying to get better about that. It's so hard, though, because when I start ranting, it just it just happens. Um, I'm really trying to watch it, especially while I'm editing. I try to edit out a lot of that stuff. Um, but thank you very, very much for leaving that re review. It is greatly appreciated, and uh, thank you for the constructive criticism as well. Um, next up is Stephanie L nineteen seventy five stars love it giving you five stars Justin because they are all well deserved your effort and research is awesome your delivery is real and conversational oh wait conversation e and then she put a fucking smiley face on there and it says uh, keep on keeping on Stephanie I know who you are I seen you join the group um and thank you very much for taking the time to leave those five stars um. I do put in a lot of effort and research into every single case that I do. Um, it's just one thing that I'm really weird about and I'm really <laughs> OCD about. So I, I appreciate those compliments and thank you for noticing that the hard work that I do put in to this. So thank you very, very much. Um, next one is Death by Scrunchy. Five stars says, good podcast, like it. It's a Leslie Kennedy. I know Leslie, she's been in the group forever. She actually requested a, an episode, and I told her, I was like, that's literally the one episode that I cannot do because of personal reasons. But um, um, 
you know, I, I do appreciate the five-star review. And if you will freaking get a hold of me and suggest a different episode, I will be more than happy to do that for you. Um, other than that, that is all I got from the USA. Um, if you have put in a review from a different country, I uh, have not gotten it yet. So again, thank you all so, so much. I will get to Facebook reviews here, uh, during the next episode. I will read a bunch of those and, uh, I suppose, uh, see you guys on part three.